Climate Energy Talk is part of Norway's Climate Festival, Bergen Chapter, Klimafestivalen et Undreotol, and is endorsed by the Norwegian Climate Foundation, Norsk Klimastiftelse, and Juridica Insect. The first two episodes are released as part of pre-festival events, while the third episode will be aired to mark the beginning of the Climate Festival in June 2021. Welcome to Climate Energy Talk, a series of three podcasts powered by the Center on Climate and Energy Transformation at the University of Bergen, Norway. My name is Esmeralda Colombo, and I'm currently a lawyer and research fellow at the Center. I'm thrilled to guide you through this journey. The theme of this series has risen rapidly during these pandemic times, and it's quite simple. How can science help us navigate the climate crisis? Can it depolarize and democratize the debate on climate change and boost green innovation? As you've seen from the title, Climate Energy Talk, in this series, we drill down on the paradox of energy policy. It is the sector that contributes most to climate change, but also it is the one where we find the least consensus. Should we continue to extract fossil fuels? Should we divest? Should we bet on the electrification of our cities' transportation infrastructure? In the first podcast, we talked about epistemic communities with philosopher Shatil Rumetweit. We found out how social and natural scientists are working together across sectors to support policymaking, often to improve national and global climate politics in more and less visible ways. In the second podcast, we dove into the climate casino, namely the perilous changes in the climate and earth systems that economic growth is bringing about. With economists Mats Greker and Knut Einar Rosendahl, we looked into recipes to turn the climate casino around by speaking truth to power using the language of economic science. In today's podcast, we are joined by another excellent speaker, Lisa Sachs, director of the Columbia University Center on Sustainable Investment in New York City. She established and now oversees CSSI's robust research portfolio and has supervised numerous projects in Chile, Guinea, Malawi, Mozambique, Namibia, Paraguay, Tanzania, and Timor-Leste, among other countries. I would say that Lisa herself embraces a community of knowledge, or epistemic community, as we called it in the previous podcasts. In fact, her education and interests span not only sustainable investment, but also law and economics. She received a Bachelor of Arts in Economics from Harvard University and earned her Juris Doctor and a Master's Degree in International Affairs from Columbia University. It is impossible to summarize her many achievements and teaching activities at Columbia University and in the country of Columbia. However, I would like to mention her role on several advisory boards, including the Investor Alliance for Human Rights and the SDC Academy. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. This is really my pleasure to join you. This podcast is The Green Tumbling. Can sustainable finance combat climate change? 
Let me quickly try to explain the story behind this invitation. Lisa has written and spoken on SDG-aligned investment, on how sustainable finance can catalyze the investments needed to meet the sustainable development goals commonly known as SDGs by 2030. We should all be interested in more uh, sustainable development and the pandemic offers a clarion call for that. Still, we need concrete recipes on how to walk the walk of SDG-based sustainable finance and also the respective and iterative roles of the public policy and private finance. I call it the green tumbling or the somersaults and other gymnastic feats that the financial sector would need to undertake to meet these uh, societal vocations that you and your colleagues rightly illuminate. As a first question, Lisa, I would like to ask you how the idea for your work in this area came about. Thank you so much, Esmeralda. And again, it's really a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to you about these issues. My whole career, as you've noted, has been focused on how to mobilize and align investment to achieve sustainable development and human rights. In general, I focus on the role of law and policy in shaping investment flows. So how can and do governments govern investment and the behavior of actors in the economy to ensure that the rights and interests of people and our planet are respected and that we're contributing to overall societal well-being within planetary boundaries. The adoption of the Sustainable Development Goals in 2015 made the role of investment both more explicit and more urgent. There is a multi-trillion dollar financing gap in achieving the SDGs. So the Agenda 2030, as it was called, the SDG framework was clear that we need the private sector and private finance to achieve the SDGs. But the SDGs also call our attention to the role of investment in a different sense, which is that we are facing several absolutely urgent environmental and social crises on our planet that are undermining our ability to live peaceful, happy lives. This is what the SDGs represent, a pathway to, to realize a realize inclusive growth, societal well-being, and planetary health. The most discussed crisis is climate change, but we're also facing related um, crises of pollution, of all forms, of loss of biodiversity, of pandemic diseases. These are all related. We can talk about more, more about that later. And also major social crises, including widening inequality within countries and between countries. These crises have been caused by and continue to be exacerbated by our growing economy and by business in its current form. So the urgency is not only to mobilize finance, but also to change our existing economic activity to stop harming our planet and ourselves. L let me just say one more thing, um, which really brought us to this moment, which is that in the past 10 years, there has been a recognition of the disconnect or, or, the, or the problems with business as usual and our economic activity in the growing crises. And so we've seen a response and there's been an absolute proliferation of 
sustainability reporting by companies of quote unquote ESG investing, that's investing that accounts for environmental, social, and governance factors, even products that say that they are, even investment products that say that they are SDG aligned. But the outcomes are worsening. The crises are worsening, not improving. And I think that's because of confusion about what it means for businesses and investors to be aligned with the SDGs. So that's what brought me to this point and to be writing and talking about that. I am seeking with my colleagues to clarify what it means and what it would what it would take for businesses and investors to actually be aligned with and not undermine the sustainable development goals. This is super interesting, Lisa. Do you think that these ideas that you are molding with your colleagues can yield to an epistemic community? namely a community of knowledge between scientific experts like you and policymakers, for example, at the global level, especially considering your advisory role in the Investor Alliance for Human Rights and your service on other prestigious boards? I think not only can it, but it has to. The SDG transformations absolutely require the coordinated activities of policymakers, of business leaders, and of academics from a number of disciplines. These are interdisciplinary challenges. If we can bring together, we must bring together these communities of knowledge and practice that span the disciplines that are required to achieve the SDGs to work in coordination. We Achieving the sustainable development goals is going to require a change in the way that our society works. And that takes new ideas, new innovation, including in scientific discoveries and new technologies, and new laws and new governance structures. So indeed, I, I think not only can it and will it, but it must. Great. I like the approach. So you uh, discussed about the proliferation of standards, reporting methods, and the need for new laws. The fact that there exists no definition of sustainable finance greatly confuses any discussion of this subject. Sagarika Chatri, Director of Climate Change at the UN-backed Principles for Responsible Investment, recently stated that only a subset of corporate targets are credible. In fact, even the su successful narrative on climate risk has at times resembled greenwashing, namely the efforts of conveying a false impression or misleading information about how a company's products are more environmentally sound. One example is the ambivalent use of carbon accounting methods. Could you comment on the selection of tools we currently have to tackle our sustainability crisis? Yes, definitely. I'm, I'm encouraged by the attention to the need for standards, definitions, frameworks, and tools for counting and reporting on and assessing what matters. I'm also encouraged by the fact that basically every financial institution, certainly every major business, recognizes the expectation from its stakeholders that they report on and they consider some of these factors. But the challenges are overwhelming, as you've noted. 
starting with the challenges of definitions, agreeing on what should be measured and how to measure it, all the way down to um, the specifics, as you mentioned, of of accounting standards and so on, we have a lot of work to do to bring coherence in this field. Let me give you a few concrete examples. Um, First of all, we need a zero carbon economy by 2050. That has also been called reaching net zero by 2050 because in some projections or in in, in some, um, because there's the possibility that we can continue to emit some sectors maybe so we don't yet have the technologies to abate all emissions so some tech sectors may continue to emit but we must have ways to capture those emissions um, and to sequester them or to capture to directly capture carbon from the air through direct air capture technologies or other ways of quote unquote, offsetting, although I think even that word is really plagued by definitional issues. But the idea of net zero is that is that we will, will be not we, we will not be emitting any more um, net carbon into the economy. An important but rarely discussed starting point is that getting to a net zero economy means that we need to reduce carbon emitting activities and increase the use of renewable energy and other technologies that are part of a net zero economy um, in storage, transmission, direct air capture, and so on. Investors frequently talk about having a net zero portfolio or product, by the way, not at all that that is standard, but some investors are seeking to have a net zero portfolio. But that is not the same as getting us to a net zero economy. And it's frankly not what's needed to get to a net zero economy. We could all have net zero portfolios and still not achieve a net zero economy. And that's really important to understand. Part of that is by looking at what investors mean when they talk about a net zero portfolio. Investors are still investing very heavily in emitting sectors. And they claim to have a net zero portfolio by balancing those investments in emitting sectors with ones in renewable sectors, where they say, these are investments that we, they are what's called avoided emissions. We could be investing in more emitting sectors, but we're not. We're investing part of our portfolio in renewable energies, and that's an offset. That is such a misrepresentation. Investing in renewables does not reduce emissions. It just avoids creating new ones. I've likened this to the absurdity of this, to claiming, for instance, that having a Diet Coke with a, with a hamburger means that you're having, you have net zero calories. That's simply not how it works. But let me make two, two other very quick points and examples here of where I think that we are, we continue to be really challenged by these definitional issues, although I think that there are many. One that you touched on is the carbon accounting methods. That is a real challenge even for those, or arguably especially for those that are really trying to properly measure carbon in their value chains. The, The challenge is that we don't have a harmonized or a consistent approach to measuring 
carbon. And yet that's arguably one of the most important things for us to be understanding about businesses, about business activities and about our investment portfolios. Without elaborating too much, there are basically three types of carbon emissions that companies and investors or companies should be reporting on. And um, there's scope one, which is their own emissions. There's scope two, which is the emissions that comes basically from their um, from the generation of uh, electricity that they use. And then there's scope three, which are emissions that happen all throughout their value chain. The scope three emissions are exceedingly hard to measure right now. Um, no one will tell you that they have confidence in the calculation of their scope three emissions. But the frameworks that allow for, or, or sorry, not allow for, the frameworks that companies use to disclose their emissions basically allow for the Carbon Disclosure Project, CDP, allows for up to something like 64 different methods for companies to use to, um, to um, measure and report on their carbon. That makes it very difficult for business leaders to really understand their, whether their business plans align with the Paris Climate Agreement. It makes it very hard to manage emissions throughout their supply chain, and it certainly makes it hard for investors and others to be able to compare the emissions um, or to understand total emissions within their portfolio. We've been working with a number of partners and other academic institutions to try to create a framework that would allow for harmonized reporting of, for instance, embedded carbon. In our case, we're looking particularly at industrial supply chains um, so that one can compare apples to apples and not apples to oranges in, in these supply chains. And then the last point I, I want to make here, although there are so many other challenges we face with the definitions and what we're measuring, but, but another really important one to me and one that we're working on quite a lot is that I still don't think that we are even measuring the right things or the things that matter, which is one of the reasons that motivated me to get even more into this space, because I was looking at the ratings or the assessments of, for instance, fossil fuel companies, of oil companies, and what was being measured or assessed was the company's own emissions, not the fact that what they were producing was oil. And the emissions that would be, you know, again, the scope three emissions of their product that wasn't accounted for. Also not accounted for is the fact that they are heavily lobbying governments around the world, most notably in my own country, to fight any type of regulation of their sector or anything that would help us get on the right track. To my mind, the product that companies are producing and the way that companies engage with society, with lawmaking processes, whether they're paying their taxes, these are absolutely decisive for to be able to assess whether they are contributing to or undermining the SDGs. And they are not yet part, we, you will not find those in sustainability reports. They are not standard ESG um, criteria, environmental social governance criteria or factors that investors and rating agencies routinely look at. So I think that that's another definitional issue at, at, a, at a very important, but at a slightly macro level, which is what matters with respect to business activity when we want to assess alignment. Um, I think that that's a sector specific question and that's how we're tackling it. So we're looking right now at food companies, foods, at the food sector, 
What aspects of food sector practices matter for assessing alignment? What matters for utility companies? What matters for, you know, and you can take each sector, apparel and so on. Um, so I, I think that that's yet another challenge for our community. This is a great call for action and call for better science and practice. So I would like to bring our conversation to some macro issues, especially the role of economists. In his article in the National Review, published on February 23, 2021, journalist Daniel Torreiro asked why we need economists. He answered his question by stating that economists are good at looking at fundamentals, not just profit and GDP growth as traditionally understood. The article references the good work of two economists, Robert Salo and Paul Romer, who challenged the traditional growth models of adopting labor and capital as the sole two inputs of GDP. Solo added the knowledge factor, the role of technology and innovation. Romer advocated the need for governments to incentivize human capital formation by subsidizing research and as a result won also the Nobel Prize in 2018. Additional theories challenge the current definition of GDP. For example, the theory for measuring human development that has been coined by Pakistan economist Mahbubul Haq, subsequently Amartya Sen and the UN Development Program have established the Human Development Index. So human development instead of uh, GDP. Lisa, what is your take on this discussion? And more generally, what do you think economists are good for in the sustainable finance space? Yeah, this is a, a really great question. And I have to tell you, um, and those some may recognize from my last name that I have grown up thinking about this question. I have the, had the real pleasure of learning from my father, Jeffrey Sachs, who's trained in economics. Um, I probably blame him for having followed in his footsteps in college, but for the past several years, at least a decade or so, he has been quite critical of the economics field as such and where it's headed. Um, well, I think what he would say and <laughs> what we discuss is that it doesn't know where it's headed. It's not a field that has been designed with a purpose or that currently has a purpose to improve human well-being um, and societal well-being. On the other hand, he shows that economists have an incredibly important role if you have that purpose. So that is the purpose that is embedded in his work as an economist. His measure, among others, of where we should be headed is human well-being and happiness. He has published for the past several years the World Happiness Report that is yet another framework alongside the ones that you mentioned of Um, of the Human Development Index and, and you know, GDP, although GDP is absolutely not a measure of happiness. So he has advocated for, and I absolutely agree, and it is fundamentally shaping my view of economics and what economics should be, that our goal as a society, and therefore the way that we think about economics should be not focused only on wealth creation, but on well-being and how to create societal well-being, human happiness, 
and planetary health. Um, I think that the conversation is moving in that direction. You, you've noted some of those shifts. The World Happiness Report helps. I believe the OECD has a better life index. So we, we have some, we, we're moving in that direction. But the field admittedly lags behind. Um, it's hard to have this conversation without drawing so much on what he has learned and shared over the past decade. But I, one example really sticks out, which is that he, for years, gave a pop quiz to his economics PhD students and asked them in this pop quiz at the beginning of the semester whether they knew what the SDGs were, whether they knew what El Nino was, whether they could uh, discuss Darwin and Darwinian theory and just basic history, world history. Oh, the I remember other questions related to the current population on the planet, the current population in China and so forth. And most of these economics PhD students could not answer some of these basic questions because this has not been how economics has been taught so far. So I think in short, the field needs a revamp. It needs to revisit its purpose. I would suggest that its purpose should align again with human happiness, human well-being, peaceful societies, and planetary health. And with that framing, it can play an absolutely critical role because we do need to understand the factors that contribute to those outcomes. Um, So a very important role for economists but one that's different from the traditional view of economics. Let us move to some examples then. Some examples of mobilization in relation to sustainable finance. The environmental and financial breakdowns are but two tales of the same story as you um, painted very uh, compellingly. The direction of global investments toward unsustainable consumption. We need to change this. In this regard, climate change litigation is rising fast, particularly against pension funds. It is usually motivated by the need for pension funds to be responsible institutional investors, specifically in their behavior toward society and the environment. However, these cases are argued in courts of law based upon arguments relating to future pensions and the need for pension funds to hedge climate and other sustainability risks for their pensioners. They are not as such environmental protection cases. Someone may argue, for instance, that any pensions for people aged under 40 that contain assets based on fossil fuels could be uh, missold, taking into consideration the state of the world some decades from now, when young people will have reached retirement age and all these assets would be stranded. In an Australian case, McVeigh versus Rust, the 57 billion Australian superannuation fund, Rust, was accused by a young pensioner of investing in dirty tech and assets, including dirty energy projects. Rust first denied any wrongdoing. In a turn of events in November 2020, It settled the case out of court, committing to applying the carbon budget set in the Paris Agreement and the TCFD instruments, 
So talking about accounting methods, the instruments that have been laid out by the task force on climate related financial disclosures. And this should have been done in both the scenario analysis and portfolio activities. This was huge. It was the first time uh, this happened in climate change litigation. And uh, um, this is considered already a landmark case, even if an out of court settlement. What is your reaction to this important but slow start in the legal field? I'm hopeful that it's not such a slow start, actually. I'm encouraged by the growing number of climate-related litigation in countries all over the world, challenging the inaction of governments at the local level, at the national level, challenging the, dis, dis, you know, the deception of fossil fuel companies. Um, there's lots of forms of climate litigation now, and you, and you uh, highlighted, of course, litigation against financial institutions. Uh, my colleagues at the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University, Columbia University Law School, have a growing database of this type of climate litigation. And I find it very encouraging, actually, because there are a lot of um, strategies uh, that are really drawing attention. And, and the cases are also increasing the cost of inaction, increasing the cost of misrepresentation, increasing what's called you know, the transition or the litigation risk to investors. Um, so I, I find this encouraging. There's a different problem that you highlighted, which is that in the financial sector, there is either or both, I should say, a misconception around to whom the financial institutions owe responsibilities or fiduciary duties and what that looks like. There's both a misconception about that and our law our laws in several countries are not good on that either. We need better, we need more clarity reflected in the law about the responsibilities and the fiduciary duties of financial institutions to their stakeholders and not only to their shareholders and not only to returns. Let me unpack that a tiny bit. Right now, especially in the United States, the overarching the overarching understanding of fiduciary duty, even if that's being chipped away a bit, is that the duty of financial institutions, of asset managers is, and pension funds is to maximize the return for their shareholders and for their beneficiaries. Um, so, and so that is their framing, that not the impact that their investments might have on the planet or on society in the future, but to maximize returns. Even in that framing, as you highlighted, there's an important role for the consideration of climate-related risks and impacts. And so even if we were completely focused on returns for beneficiaries, there is still a strong case to avoid destroying our planet for the future and to account for the risk, as you said, of stranded assets and of the decreased value of investments that are misaligned with the Paris Climate Agreement or with the SDGs. But I would argue for the broader shift 
away from just thinking about financial returns, even if they are adjusted for these risks, and that we need to better understand and help financial institutions understand and embed in our legal frameworks the responsibility of financial institutions and asset managers to also consider their impact on other stakeholders, including on the planet. Um, so I, I'm, I'm actually encouraged by the discussion in this space, by the ideas, by the experimentation around the world, um, and the role that litigation will play in this. You know, by offering sound arguments and solutions for the preeminence of a healthy society, rather than shareholder primacy, I think that you, Lisa, embody the best traits economists can have. You find tools to imagine a world where economics is generally the management of a household. As the Greeks would say, this is the Greek etymology, where our common household is a healthy society within a stable climate and natural environment. In a recent paper updated after the outbreak of the pandemic, you and your father, Jeffrey Sachs, wrote about the need for an economic perspective on realizing the right to health, complementing the existent international obligations by identifying the most cost-effective investments for improving health systems, quantifying the financing gap to realize the right to health in poor countries, and creating benchmarks for measuring success and monitoring progress. What is the top priority better to better tackle pandemics now and in the future? I know the agenda is vast and complex, so please feel free to mention just some of the most needed actions. Yeah, it's a great question, and it's very much on our minds every time we we uh, commiserate with friends and family about um, our eagerness to get back to normal that, you know, that, that actually um, COVID has been just the most recent in a series of growing and increasing, increasingly virulent pandemic diseases. We had Zika, SARS, MERS, and so on. So I think you're asking a really important question because pandemic diseases, whether COVID or otherwise, are are here with us to stay unless we make drastic changes. So I would emphasize two things. As you said, there's a massive agenda, but I would emphasize two. One is to understand pandemic diseases as an environmental crisis. And secondary to, that is related to or caused by the environmental stress that we are putting on our planet with our economy that is growing unsustainably and our growing population that has just commandeered the natural environment. Pandemic diseases are exacerbated by climate change that shift uh, uh, um, habitats of animals and bring humans and animals into closer proximity in certain cases. There are all sorts of explanations for the increase of pandemic diseases that relate to um, these planetary pressures of our economic system. So I think the first thing to understand is that this is related to our existential challenges of mitigating or stopping, managing the impacts that our economy and our society is putting on the environment. The second thing that I would emphasize is that the pandemic both illustrated, but was also 
massively exacerbated by the inequality we spoke about at the very beginning and by underinvestment in public systems, in public health systems, in data systems, in social safety nets and others, we can learn two things from that. First, I would just say that it absolutely revealed how vulnerable so many in our society are to these types of disruptions because of both this underinvestment and the inequality uh, of frontline workers, of marginalized communities. The most vulnerable bore the brunt of this pandemic and continue to. So it really revealed our massive and widening inequality and the problems with that. But many of the impacts of this pandemic could have been mitigated with proper financing and proper investment. Again, in health systems, in social safety nets, in other public goods that provide for these vulnerable societies that enable public health systems to respond properly, that incentivize the creation of vaccinations and other equipment and medications, but that do so in a way that makes them available to and affordable to the whole world. Um, and that doesn't create billionaires, which by the way, is what happened with this pandemic as the world suffered. We have, we got, we are had more billionaires over the past year and the top 500 billionaires or so earned another trillion or two dollars as the world was on fire. Um, and the companies that created the vaccines using public financing in the US from the National Institute of Health um, that finances so much innovation are now reaping billions of dollars while making it exceedingly difficult for the rest of the world to access these life-saving drugs. So I really hope we've learned at these three lessons that we need to manage our planet. It's our one home. It is in, these crises are interrelated and that we can't ignore environmental crises and expect to maintain our health stability and happiness that if we don't care for the most marginalized and the most vulnerable among us, we are all at risk. And the third is that this is the time for public investment in the, in the systems and public goods that make for prepared, safe, and content and decent societies. This is a fascinating and important vision for the future. I really hope that it will be taken up by policymakers, all of us that um, are able to work uh, within this space. So here we are concluding today's session, the third and final podcast in the series Climate Energy Talk. It was an honor to talk with you, Lisa. Thanks so much for your brilliant and thought-provoking remarks. The years 2020 and 2021, as you mentioned, have shown how the role of scientists is important. It is all the more critical. You illustrated some tangible avenues through which to engage in green tumbling, the somersaults and other gymnastic feats that the fields of finance will need to undertake to meet the societal vocation the two and the epistemic communities you work with rightly illuminate. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you very much.